Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. So we are getting into tail end of 2019. Uh, that means, of course, folks, 2020 is right around the corner. And unless you've been under a rock, you know that that also means EUMDR goes into effect here very, very soon. May 2020. It's going to be here super fast. There's always stuff to learn on this topic. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, I had a chance to talk with Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research, and we talk a lot about things that you can do to prepare. Now, of uh, special note on this episode, when Isabella and I recorded this, everything was on track with EUMDR, including Udamed. But since uh, there's been an announcement that Udamed has been delayed by two years, and uh, we'll include a link to that for you to check that out too. But nonetheless, there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. Chances are uh, for you and your companies on EUMDR, even with Udamed being delayed. So, Enjoy this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. You know, I, I don't know the count right now as we record this session, but let's just say we're well under a year before EUMDR is live and in effect. And I'm guessing, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to send me a note to admit this, but I'm guessing there's more work that you and your companies need to do to get prepared for EUMDR. And maybe you're still trying to figure out what it means. And good news, we've got an expert on the Global Medical Device Podcast today. Joining me is Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. So welcome, Isabella. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I always like to start off these sorts of conversations to give people a little bit of context, but tell the folks, I guess, off the jump here, a little bit about Proxima Clinical Research, and and then we'll dive into EUMDR-specific topics of conversation. Sure. So Proxima uh, Clinical Research is a contract research organization. We do regulatory affairs and clinical development and clinical trial management. We focus mostly on emerging companies, so startup companies, less your Medtronics and more your J-Lab. I mean, I guess talk about a typical kind of engagement that a company may may reach out to you to help with. I mean, what, what are some typical things that Proxima does better? I don't want you to, to have to feel like it's a competition here, but what do you do really, really well? Yeah, so in the early stages, companies will reach out to us for their early regulatory strategy planning. You know, when they're moving a little bit forward, they'll reach out for pre-sub. Um, we do pre-submission meetings. Um, we write the packets. We'll have the meetings. We've done, you know, breakthrough device designations. Then, you know, for companies that require clinicals, uh, we can help them come up with their clinical development plan, you know, clinical evaluation reports, clinical evaluation plans. And then we can also run those trials, so full service, trial management, monitoring, data management, all of that. And usually we, because we're used to working with smaller companies, we're a bit more flexible with our 
both our time and our contracting. So we really try to tailor it to to moving at a faster pace, you know, than some of the other companies may. And your offices are right in the heart of Houston, Texas, right? Yeah, so we're located in the Texas Medical Center. Um, nice. We actually have one of the offices in the J Labs and one of the offices in the TMC um, X space. So we're right next door to the accelerator too, and we're really heavily involved in that accelerator. And I, I got to imagine for the skills and services that you're bringing to the table, that location, that geographic location is pretty strategic. And I'm sure you have very strong relationships with a lot of the clinical folks and hospitals and things in that market. Right. Yeah. So there are tons of hospitals. I think it's the largest medical center. Yeah, it's in the crazy. World. It's like so it's like in the have, hundreds of hospitals, right? Something like that. Yeah. And so then, you know, if if there are trials running there, it's really easy for us to just be on site really quickly. And you know, MD Anderson's over here. Um, we have a whole bunch of, uh, you know, Houston Methodist Memorial Hermann, and they also have you know little satellite kind of hospitals and other locations in the Houston area. So it's, it's a really large medical center within Houston proper, but also they have these little branch outs in, you know, the Woodlands and Conrad yeah. and places like that. Sure. So I had a chance to meet you and the Proxima team at our one of our recent roadshow events. And, you know, I was impressed beforehand, but after talking to you and Kevin and, and your colleagues, like, oh my goodness, what a powerful team. What a what a knowledgeable team. And and it was clear that, you know, uh, I had this date circled on my calendar to, to get to talk to you. And, you know, I'm a guy that's in the know, but I learned so much from talking to you and, and Kevin and, and your other colleagues at Proxima. So let's dive right in to EUMDR. What do you say? Sure. Sounds good. All right. All right. So I hope this is a recap for people. I hope some of this they've heard before. I'm sure they'll hear some things that they they didn't realize. Uh, but let's start first. If you can maybe give a, you know, I, I'll say 30,000 foot overview of of EUMDR, why now? Well, you know, uh, again, not down in the weeds, but somewhat high level philosophical differences between EUMDR versus the MDD. Maybe that, that might be a good place to kind of start. Yeah. So, well, why now? I think really the the shift in there needing to be the EUMDR from the MDD was um, the hip implant debacle, and then there were the hip implant debacle. And so essentially, there was just kind of an uproar about people having implants implanted in them that, you know, hip was rupturing and they hadn't properly notified their notified body about the change in materials. And so people had this materials, you know, being distributed throughout their body that nobody really knew what it was and people were getting sick. And so I think that that was really the tipping point for moving towards the MDR. And so really the MDR is a bit more focused on safety. It's a, it's, well, not a bit, a lot more focused on safety and it's, much longer than the MDD. Um, it does combine the MDD and the AIMDD, which was the Active Implantable Medical Device Directive. But even you know, combined, those two directives were about half the length of the EUMDR. And so it's it's really more focused on safety and an entire life cycle approach um, rather than just the pre-market phase. So there's lots of post-market talk in the MD of uh, the MDR now. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's that's one of the clear things is that life cycle piece, right? You know, it's it's um I think a lot of times 
the MDD was almost viewed, you know, almost analogous to like an FDA speak, like a 510K submission or something like that, which, you know, there's certainly a part of that, but it's, it doesn't just stop once you launch your product. So maybe talk a little bit about some of the, if there's gotchas or, or some tips or pointers that you want to share with folks about embracing this total product lifecycle approach. Yeah. So one thing to the point about, you know, 510K. So we have in the U.S. predicates, right? And so in the EU, in the past, they were able to, it wasn't exactly the same as a predicate, you know, but these equivalent devices um, that they could use clinical data from and sort of build a robust safety and effectiveness database using this quote-unquote equivalent device. Equivalency is a bit different in the sense that it can be technologically similar, but from a biological standpoint and from a clinical standpoint, you have to be the same. And so moving into the MDR for class 2B implantables and class 3 devices, now in order to establish any type of equivalency, you have to have a contract in place with those manufacturers that are quote-unquote equivalent devices to yours. Um, so that's going to be pretty difficult to, to get into place. Um, so more now than prior, equivalency is probably going to be used with manufacturers who are you know, using their own manufactured device as an equivalent device because that may be the only way that they can get access to that data. So that's one aspect of you know, sort of changes that have occurred. The other thing is, just in general, the clinical data burden is going to be much higher in the with the EU MDR, you know, from a pre-market standpoint and from a post-market standpoint. You know, the hope, even with the MDD, was that you would do, you know, post-market surveillance and you'd have, you know, robust monitoring. But we've seen that that hasn't happened in a lot of the cases. And so currently, companies who maybe didn't go the length that they should have gone with that post-market surveillance, you know, their CAPAs and things like that are kind of scrambling to figure out, are they compliant with the MDR? Is the clinical data that they have compliant or do they have to go run these, you know, massive trials to then, you know, be recertified under UMDR at the EU? You know, and, and I've heard a lot of companies that are they're really, really concerned about that because in some cases they've had, you know, products on the market in the EU for, in some cases, decades. And they don't always have uh, strong uh, data to corroborate clinical use, per se, or clinical you know, uh, support. Um, so, so that seems to be kind of a really big challenge, especially if you already have a product that's been on the market for some time. So do you have any tips or pointers, pointers for folks that might be in that situation or, or you know, some advice or you know, maybe any case studies or anecdotes that you might be able to share on, on how to handle that situation? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's not all doom for folks in, in that situation. You know, the medical device directives, they're not totally shifting from the medical device directives and ISO 14155. So a lot of aspects of those two guidances slash standards are still applicable under the MDR. So, you know, the first thing that I would suggest one do is do a gap analysis of, you know, the data that you need to be compliant with 
the GSPRs and what you currently have and also what's publicly available because you can use, you know, vigilance reporting and and studies that were investigator sponsored, you, you know, things that were typically gathered during a post-market scrum, even if they weren't gathered by you, maybe you, because you haven't been as active as you should have been, you can do a literature search to try to kind of Go through some of sim- some of the similar measures to what you do when you're putting together, getting all the documentation together for your clinical evaluation report to get, you know, an understanding of where you're at and where your gaps are. And then you can start figuring out how you need to address those. And this is your superpower, right? This is what Proxima Clinical Research, this is one of those things that you do really, really well is help companies manage this piece. Right, yeah, because coming from a company that has both regulatory and clinical expertise, you know, both in management and clinical trial development, we have an understanding of the regulatory needs, you know, from EU, FDA, whatever, but also sort of the clinical needs from a medical perspective, but also from, you know, vigilance and all of that kind of perspective, Um, the types of testing that were required, you know, in the past and doing an analysis of the data that's out there to really find those flags and and what maybe, you know, important endpoints would be um, and and how you're addressing those. Uh, There's a couple of other things, twist, if you will, that I want to explore with you on, on the topic of clinical evaluation. The scenario we just talked about is a little bit more focused on a company that may already have a product that's been in the market. How is the process different or or the same for a startup that's that's trying to bring their very first product to market? Yeah, so well, I guess they won't have that you know vigilance data. They won't have that post marketing data to kind of lean on. But you would start off typically, you know, with a literature search, even if you can't claim equivalence. You can do a literature search to see, you know, the types of considerations for other devices out there, you know, clinical relevance in the particular indication that you're looking for. You know, you want to get an understanding of, you really want to do, again, those GSPRs and what what of those GSPRs do you need clinical evidence to, to show compliance? You know, same thing that you would do in the U.S. too, you want to have an understanding of your intended use, your indications, your risk analysis, the general description of your device. And like I said, if you're going to do some kind of literature search, you want to understand similar devices that are out there. You want to understand what the standard of care is. Um, what are some alternative options? Are there any standards that apply to your device? What's the biocompatibility like? So the typical stuff that you'd go through when you're trying to bring a device to market, you know, in the U.S. or the EU. So in the EU, it used to be that it was a bit easier to get the e-mark, um, but now the pendulum has sort of swung, um, and it's maybe a little closer to the U.S., uh, but I think it's a little bit more difficult than the U.S. currently. A lot of companies that I have talked to also and understanding, um, you know, companies who aren't already on the market um, and understanding what may be required. They're actually coming to the U.S. and doing pre-submission meetings with the FDA to get an understanding of what might be required for their devices in the EU. So that's a strategy that a lot of companies are employing to really get an understanding of, you know, the type of both preclinical and clinical evidence that they're going to need to, you know, get a certificate. 
Okay, I don't want to come back to that here in a moment. Let me just take a, a brief pause. Uh, first, I want to remind folks I'm talking with Isabella Schmidt. Isabella is a regulatory affairs consultant with Proxima Clinical Research. You can learn a whole bunch more about Proxima team and, and their services and how they can help you, uh, regardless of shape and size of company. Uh, just go to Proxima. CRO.com, P-R-O-X-I-M-A-C-R-O.com. And you can learn a whole bunch more about uh, Proxima and, and how they can help you. I also want to remind folks that, um, of course, you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Did you know that Greenlight Guru, we also have a second podcast that we launched earlier this year. It's called Med Tech True Quality Stories. Really awesome uh, opportunity for me. I get to talk to uh, med tech executives, founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs, inventors, people that are out there with a passion to improve the quality of life, and, and uh, they're sharing their stories, the the things that that went well, the things that maybe didn't go so well, and they're providing some tips and pointers uh, for those of you who might be on similar types of journeys. So wherever you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, you'll be able to find MedTech True Quality Stories uh, podcast as well. Just search for it. And, and you know, if, if you can't find it, at the very least, you can come to the Greenlight Guru website, www.greenlight.guru. And we certainly have every single episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, which is like 120 now or something crazy like that, as well as all the episodes of MedTech True Quality Stories. So be sure to check that out. All right. So, Isabella, you just mentioned something that I think is interesting where, and then I'm not make sure I heard you correctly, that because of you know the pendulum swinging today as, as you and I are speaking, that getting a product through the regulatory, I'll use the word hurdles, but um, you know, regulatory uh, path to market is a little bit maybe simpler in the U.S. and that a lot of even EU companies are coming to U.S. first, get the clearance so they can start building their, their body of knowledge, especially on things like clinical evaluation to be able to support uh, an eventual uh, CE mark application. Am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, and, but even further than that, even if they're going for CE mark first, they're coming to the U.S. to get feedback from the agency that they then would apply to their overall development. So they're using those pre-submissions uh, to get some understanding of what an agency might require because they don't really have that support in the EU right now. And the, the way it's going to play out is so up in the air at the moment that there really is no past precedent for them to go look at currently. Um, yeah. So they're trying to get an understanding of what they need to do, you know, not only for the U.S., but they're applying that also to the EU. Uh, I see. And, and are you finding that companies that are taking that sort of angle, the, the feedback that they're in the input that they're getting from FDA, that, that that's being accepted outside the U.S.? You know, I I don't know the answer to that right now. Um, I mean, it's too soon. It's a little bit too soon, right? I mean, I think I, I yeah, read the other yeah. day there's only the first company to go through EUMDR just happened like a week or two ago. So I think there's only yeah, not, yeah. not a lot of data points. Yeah. 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 So I think that, you know, the hope is that it was similar to the hope is that, you know, in a lot of cases that the harmonized standards of yesteryear of the MDD will still, you know, to a degree apply under the MDR. 
So I think it's the hope that things aren't so drastically changed that, I mean, they are drastically changed, but they, they aren't so drastically changed um, from a product development standpoint that um, that they can use this input from the FDA and they can still sort of lean on standards and things to understand the types of testing that they need to do. Okay, that makes sense. So I guess and I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more here in the next few minutes about other aspects of the clinical side of things. But to kind of summarize it for folks listening, you know, what are the top two or three points or tips that companies should be doing right now? So I definitely would start off with that gap analysis. Um, that is the first step I would take to moving forward trying to move into the EU under the MDR. And so that's the gap analysis from the MDD requirements to the MDR requirements. You know, if you're starting off new, you know, you, you're not a product that's already on the market. I think it, it may be a little bit easier because you don't have, you know, years of data and a conformity assessment that was based on different standards to move forward because you're kind of, you know, starting from square one. But, and I would plan to do MDR, I wouldn't focus using MDD because there will be too much of a gap there. So some companies have come to me and asked, you know, should we try to do MDD first and, you know, spend the, you know, next four years or whatever under MDD and then move to MDR. And my advice would be no, um, because you're going to try to meet the MDD requirements and then you're going to have to go back and fill a whole bunch of gaps with MDR. So just do MDR first. So that you don't have to do that, you know, gap analysis, quote unquote, again later, yeah. and have to get recertified. And and on top of that, a lot of the notified bodies, they're not even taking MDD anymore because, especially the ones who are doing MDR, um, take they have to do so many recertification applications um, and, and new, you know, conformity assessments that that they are kind of swamped. There's only four of them currently, and so and then the ones who are, you know, not designated yet, they're either bowing out or they're getting ready to be designated. And so they're filling, you know, the notified bodies are having to fill in gaps between MDR and MDD and their requirements too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I've even heard of the four that uh, at least a couple of those are not even accepting new clients right now, which makes it even more complicated. So it is, it is, uh, as I say, it it is the definition of a hot mess right now. So, uh, Hopefully we get some clarity. Yeah, and, and I know that the U.S. a few months ago had sent a letter to the EU asking them to delay the implementation because they felt that they were so far behind. You know, it's only four notified bodies. A lot of the implementing acts haven't been implemented or, you know, they're not complete. And so it's been difficult for people to understand what they're, you know, people meaning companies, to understand what they're supposed to do moving forward um, because they don't really have the type of instruction that they used to have. And a lot of these, you know, smaller companies are going to have a lot of difficulty uh, meeting these in this time frame because it requires a big, a lot of resources, you know, it's a, it's a a heavy lift and they just they don't have the financial resources to make it happen so their products will just get removed from the market and that could you know a medical issue but also it may be an issue for marketplaces you know even yeah. the u.s products that are being sold in the eu yeah speaking of, of things that aren't entirely clear as part of the new eu mdr initiative 
uh, maybe speak a minute about this this thing called Udemed. I know we're all on the edge of our seat, really waiting for this to to be ready. I, I think we're still in a waiting or a holding pattern on that. Um, what do you know, or what do you hope, or what? I guess enlighten us a little bit about this this Udemed thing. What is it conceptually? Uh, where is it? When can we expect it? Yeah, so it is a database um, that's going to capture a wide array of medical devices information. And so there will be, you know, that isn't necessarily a new concept to a degree. Competent authorities have had sort of database access to, to information in the past, but now it's going to be, you know, economic operators are required to put information in their economic operators, meaning, you know, um, manufacturers, distributors, etc. cetera. Um, and it's going to capture information on the post-market surveillance, um, clinical investigations, device identifiers, UDIs. And then also, when I say clinical investigation information, so these are, this is going to be information when you're running a clinical trial that maybe, you know, you have some safety events, you're going to submit those through Udemed. And instead of having to file, you know, specific reports with each uh, member state. It's it's just such a lot to, to take on. I mean, so and I, I do see I, I see a lot of positives from this because it does seem like there this is um, you know once it's in place the EUMDR Udemed the uh, the clinical evaluation pieces are, are fully active and in place and there are resources and so on and so forth. This this seems to be a huge step towards global harmonization. Now uh, I know there's a little pain and suffering that we're all going to have to go through to get there. But but what do you think about this? I mean, are are we moving towards a, a, a closer step closer? I'm sorry, a step closer to uh, global harmonization, or, or did the pe- pendulum sw- swing so far the other way in the EU that uh, that's too soon to say that? Well, I'm hoping that it's a step closer towards harmonization. Um, you know the. One of the things with Udemed and the EU MGR is they're doing sort of an experiment right now where you can file one clinical application um, to to multiple member states um, instead of having to do them individually. And so as a sponsor company, you select um, one of the member states to be sort of the coordinating member state. Member states have to agree um, with that or they come up with their own member state uh, who is going to be the coordinating member state. And then every... Each member state will do an assessment and they'll give their feedback and then the coordinating member state will sort of make that final decision um, if there are legal or ethics issues um, that the, that cause one of the other member states to disagree, um, they can object, but only for those reasons. Otherwise, they have to accept that the application has been accepted and the clinical investigation can then begin. And so that's sort of like an experiment that they're doing with the EUMDR. They're going to review it in 2026, and then it'll become mandatory in 2027. So right now it's a voluntary kind of thing that sponsor companies can elect to do. Yeah. Isabella, I know we could probably talk for three more days uh, on this this global topic or this this broad topic of EUMDR, and, and perhaps uh, let's leave it at this for today. You know, maybe we can find another time to to go into some other nuances and 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 depth on a couple other areas of EUMDR on a, a f- upcoming episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Why don't we, why don't we you know, just plan to do that? Well, let's do another session here soon, okay? Sure, sounds good. 
All right. So before we wrap things up, any last little tidbits or or advice that that you think is important to leave the audience with on this particular episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast? Yeah. So um, with regards to the EU MDR, if you are planning on going to the EU, I would start assessing your GSPRs, doing a gap analysis, whether it's between what the FDA requires and what it seems like the EU is going to require, or whether you're already on the market in the EU, a gap analysis between the MDD and the MDR. Um, really start getting that underway. If you're if you're still in the early stages and you want to do, you know, US and EU, I would do a strategy for both and do that gap analysis early. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for taking time to chat with me about uh, EU MDR and, and to explain some of the things that are important and, and tips that people should be focused on right now. So thank you so much. I, I totally appreciate you taking time. I know you're busy working with all kinds of companies, but um, it's clear that you know your stuff. And folks, that Again, I would encourage you to reach out to Isabella and the team at Proxima Clinical Research. Again, it's ProximaCRO.com. Contact them if you have additional questions or comments. Uh, they're there to help. This is what, what they do for a living, and they're experts. So, uh, And they're not just experts in the EU. They're, they're global regulatory experts as well. So you know, they're, they're really good folks to have in your corner as you start to bring new products to market. So definitely check them out. As always... Uh, no, yeah. Do anything else? Sorry, I, I no. I was, gonna say, I was gonna say it was nice talking to you, and thanks for having <laughs> me on the show. You got <laughs> it. My pleasure. And folks, you know, Greenlight Guru, we're here to help you too. We have an EQMS software platform. It's designed specifically for the medical device industry by actual medical device professionals. The the framework of EUMDR of thirteen forty five of FDA twenty fourteen nine seventy one part eleven. All those regulatory requirements that uh, we have to deal with on a daily basis in the design, development, manufacturing, and and sale of medical devices. We've got you covered. We've built a framework uh, that makes this pretty simple and straightforward and gives you the guardrails that you need to focus on true quality. So if your quality system, you know, maybe you're not getting the throughput or the efficiency, or maybe you feel like it's a little bit bloated and overly burdensome, uh, it's worth reaching out to us. Simply go to www.greenlight.guru. You can learn a lot of information on our website about our award-winning software platform. And if you want to reach out and have a conversation with somebody on our team, just say the word and we'd be happy to do so. So check that out. As always, thank you for being a listener of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Uh, definitely appreciate that. Share that with this with your friends. Uh, get other people listening uh, as well. Um, and, and we're going to keep bringing you some fresh, relevant topics that are impacting medical device professionals all over the globe. So as always, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast, and this is your host, founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Thank you.